Okay, so I don't know if any of you guys read ahead, but if you did, you notice that today we're in Genesis chapter 36, which, you know, is, is awesome. We're continuing our line in our, our series in Genesis. However, when I got the email a couple weeks ago from Ken that it was my turn to teach, you know, I got really, really excited, saw that it was going to be Genesis 36. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, as I've prepared uh, studying Genesis over the last few months, I know that this is around the time where the story of Joseph starts. So I was like, cool, I could kickstart the the life of Joseph and, you know, really kind of dig into what's going to happen there. Well, I open up my, my, my Bible and I turn to Genesis 36 and all I see is the genealogy of Esau. And in my head, I'm like, dang it, Ken, like you just didn't want to teach this passage and you threw it off to me. And so, like I said earlier, whatever Ken doesn't want to do, I get to do. Uh, but no, I, I'm really excited. It's been kind of cool to, as, we've, as I've been studying this, I'm not gonna lie, I initially started thinking like, man, what in the world, like, how in the world Am I going to teach a list of names that I can barely pronounce? But it's been really cool to see uh, really what the Lord is bringing out in this passage. So I'm just going to jump into it. Now, now bear with me as we, we go through some of these names. But Genesis chapter 36, verse 1 says, These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimath bore Reuel, and Aholibama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So, if you're like me, you're initially like, what in the world? How, what, what am I supposed to do with this? But I think as we read scripture, really at any point, I think over the last few semesters, one of the things Ken and I have stressed is the, how we are to study scripture. And so one of the questions or one of the key things that we always talk about is context is key. You've got to understand context. You've got to ask yourself, why is this here? Why would Moses, as he's writing this to the Israelites, why would he think it's important for the Israelites as they're about to walk into the promised land, why is it important for them to to understand this, to to read this? And then additionally, just as you study, you you need to see in the context here, we've spent the last, at least for us, the last few weeks on the life of Jacob. And we've dug pretty deep into Jacob's life from whenever he tricked his father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing to whenever he fled to Laban and then all of his Uh, issues there to returning back to Esau and and the forgiveness that we see there. We have spent a ton of time on the life of Jacob. So why all of a sudden this shift to telling us the generations of Esau? What is the reason behind why Moses is doing this? When it comes to any passage of scripture, we have to understand that we believe that every part of scripture is inspired by God. So that includes the genealogies. I mean, if you think this is tough, go read the book of Numbers. I mean, there's this just chock full of genealogies, but it's all there for a reason. There is a reason that God has has included this in scripture and we need to try and figure that out. Secondly, it's a transition chapter. It's kind of cool to see how Moses uses this. Over really all of Genesis, we, we see him 
time and time again, use a genealogy as a transition to the next character. So through Genesis, we go from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. But in between each of those, before we shift to the next main character, what ends up happening is there's a genealogy. Specifically, I think to uh, Abraham, whenever we're going from uh, Abraham to Isaac, we actually get a genealogy of uh, Ishmael. And it's not nearly as long as this one, but we get the genealogy of Ishmael and then the story with Isaac picks up. Well, so here we've got the, the whole story of Jacob, insert the genealogy of Esau, and then after this, chapter 37 starts the life of Joseph. And so Moses is using this as a transition as we continue through the book of Genesis. But what's also really, really cool to see here is how Genesis chapter 35 ends and how Genesis chapter 36 starts. What these two chapters are doing is really setting up this contrast between Jacob and Esau and ultimately how their lives, their, their generations, their uh, descendants, what it looks like following the Lord and what it looks like not to. So we really see this contrast between Jacob and Esau. So look at chapter 35. This is how it ends. It says, now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. So you see here, we've got the sons of Jacob, which ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. And what's actually kind of fascinating is, uh, so Jacob has 12 sons. Esau is going to, with his wives, have 12 sons. And he has a concubine where he has another son with. But it's really kind of this really cool comparison of the 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 sons of Esau. But what's going on here, there's so much more than meets the eye. There's so much more than just a list of names that we can't pronounce. It's the juxtaposition of these two brothers. And it's showing us what this life of being blessed by God and having the presence of God and really being blessed by God, but without God's presence. So we've got two lines here. We've got the primary line of Jacob, which is the one that's blessed. If you remember over the last few weeks when we've talked about the story of Jacob, he obviously deceived his father into blessing him, which this isn't the first time that the second born son is actually the one who is blessed. Because if you think back to Isaac and Ishmael, Ishmael technically was born first, but Isaac is the one that's blessed. Here, Jacob was the second born, yet he deceives his father into blessing him. And so the, the promises through that God has given to his people are going to be passed down through the primary line of Jacob. And then we've also got in this story, the secondary line of Esau. So we've got what happens with Jacob and then we've got what happens with Esau. Like I just said, if you look back at chapter 35, verse 26, it tells us these are the sons of Jacob. And then right as we start chapter uh, 36, it says, these are the generations of Esau. And the the Israelites, as they're reading this, would have picked up on the fact that, okay, look at the 12 sons of Jacob, look at the sons of Esau, knowing their history and and knowing what's going to happen with each of them, they know how, okay, 
this is what this is what Moses is trying to get us to understand really a life with God and a life without God as we see the generations of Esau go out now one of the things that I want to point out to you guys is something that we've talked quite a bit about over the last I guess years we've been in Genesis is all throughout Genesis there's this idea of the the nation versus the nations and what I mean by that is we've got the, the nation, the, the people of God, the, the chosen nation, and in the Hebrew, it's, it's goy. So whenever you see this word, the, the Hebrew word goy in scripture or, or nation, what it's referring to is God's chosen people. And then outside of that, everybody outside of that is the goyim, it's the nations. So we see this pop up just in these few verses at the end of 35 and the beginning of 36 is Moses is giving us this comparison and showing us what's going to happen with the nation, the the people of God, the Goy, and then the nations, the Goyim, everybody else. So we see all the way back to Genesis 12, this promise that's going to be passed down through the line of Jacob, through the generations of Jacob now, that they will be made into a great nation, and it's singular referring to God's people. In this story, if it hasn't been clear already, Jacob's line is the goy. Jacob's line is the one through which God is going to continue to fulfill his promises, and it's the children of the inheritance. Jacob's line is the one that has been blessed, and his descendants are the ones that are going to continue to be God's people. And in Genesis chapter 22, we see through your descendants, all the nations, the the goyim of the earth will be blessed. So the nations will be blessed by the nation. And Moses is trying to make sure that we get that very clearly, that there's there's gonna be this comparison between the nation, Jacob's sons and Jacob's descendants versus the nation's uh, Esau's descendants as we see today. So as I said earlier, Esau's line becomes the Goyim. So we got Jacob's sons, Jacob's descendants. They're the Goy, they're the nation. They're the ones that God is going to continue his promises through. And then Esau's descendants are going to be the Goyim. It's literally everybody else. So as we read this, the question that comes to my mind is, okay, so what happens? What happens with the Goyim? What happens to the descendants of Esau? Well, this chapter, chapter is very clear in that it answers that. Picking up in verse six, we're going to see what happened with the, the life of Esau. It says, then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land far away from his brother, Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourning could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Again, Esau is Edom. That'll be kind of important. This is now the second time that's been mentioned that Esau is Edom. Similarly to how Jacob's name was changed to Israel, Edom or Esau's name wasn't necessarily changed, but he was also known as Edom. Esau becomes the father of the Edomites. He basically founded uh, Edom, which will be important for us as we move forward. So here we see this, this separation of Jacob and Esau. So, and it, go, and it goes pretty smoothly. You would imagine that 
really separations that we've seen in Genesis so far haven't gone uh, super well. If you remember when Ishmael separated from Abraham and Isaac, uh, basically they were, him and his mom were told to get out, to leave. The the conflict there was pretty stark. But here we see two brothers. Really, Esau has every reason to be mad at Jacob. I mean, we've covered this over the last couple of weeks. He stole his uh, birthright. He stole his blessing. He, he stole all of this from him. Yet we see here in Genesis 36 that they, they split and everything seems to be going well. Last week we saw that uh, Esau forgave his brother. He, he ran to him when he saw him for the first time, meeting his family uh, and welcomed him back in. So the separation between Jacob and Esau wasn't something that was full of conflict. It wasn't something that uh, was incredibly difficult the reason they split is because there just wasn't enough room for them. You you know, Jacob and Esau both had plenty of possessions. They had plenty of livestock. They had just a lot of stuff. And the land that they were living in did not have enough room for them, especially as you think about uh, shepherding, like giving livestock the amount of of food to eat, that there just wasn't enough room. And so Esau, as we see here, leaves, uh, leaves Jacob, splits from Jacob. But what we learned about Esau in this is, man, he's, he's pretty blessed. He, he, he has almost, every, at least at this time, anything that the world has to offer, he pretty much has. He's become fruitful and prosperous. He, it says all of his sons and his daughters, uh, he, he's got descendants uh, beyond descendants. But then we have to remember here that he's still a son of Isaac. And this is important because, you know, the promises of God have been passed from Abraham to Isaac, and then Isaac obviously blessed Jacob, but he's still a son of Isaac. And because of that, he is still a legitimate conduit through whom God will fulfill his promises. God has made promises to, um, to this family and through this line, and Isaac or uh, Esau being a son of Isaac is still someone who God can fulfilled these promises through. Specifically, the the promise of offspring. If we see in Genesis 26, one of the promises given to uh, God's people is, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to you your offspring all of these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There's the, the goyim again, as we talked about earlier. But... Esau's descendants are considered to be a part of the goyim, not the goy. They are not a part of the nation, God's chosen people. And so the blessing to Esau and his descendants is going to look a little different. If you, if you look at the, the blessing that Jacob get, or that Isaac gives Jacob, it's everything that was promised to Abraham, everything that was promised to Isaac is now passed on to Jacob. But the blessing that Isaac gives Esau is a little different. Look at it here. Genesis chapter 27, it says, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Not not exactly the blessing that you want, right? I mean, if you look at everything that was promised to, to Jacob and you compare it to this, I mean, talk about second tier status. This isn't exactly what he wants to hear. 
but he still ends up blessed. I mean, as we read the beginning of chapter 36, he has got a ton of wealth. He's got a ton of possessions. He's got a huge family. He's got everything to the point to where there is just no room for him and Jacob to exist and live in the same land together. And so because him being so blessed, he has to split apart from his brother. Like I said, he's got, it says he took his wives, his sons, his daughters, all the members of his household, implying that he's got plenty, uh, his, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan. If you remember, the two things that we need to focus on when it comes to this blessing uh, of Esau is his descendants and his land. Now, one of the promises that's given to uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob is I'm going to give you descendants more than you can number, an amazing amount of descendants. Well, the same thing happens with Esau. And what's interesting is, I, and I've done the research here with all these names that you can't pronounce, is many of them become great leaders. Now, they do so without following after the Lord. They're, they're pagans. But from a worldly point of view, they become great leaders. There's an entire section in this genealogy about how every single one of uh, Esau's sons becomes a chief of one of their tribe, one of their clans. And so you see this, this rise in prominence of the descendants of Esau. Chapter 36, verse 16, it says, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. So they clearly had a lot of power uh, and to power, wealth, and everything like that to their name. Additionally, in chapter 36, towards the end, we get just an entire section of all of the descendants of Esau who became kings. And it makes it very clear that Edom, the, the Edomites had kings before Israel ever had kings. And so you see there's not only chiefs of clans in the descendants of Esau, but there's even kings over entire uh, uh, nations. People come from Esau. So his descendants are, from a worldly point of view, great leaders, they're powerful people. And he doubles down on it. Moses doubles down on this at the end of uh, chapter 36, one of the last verses. He, he Really what, what's happened is as you go through chapter 36, you get the list of all the chiefs, you get the list of all the kings. And then to end it all, it says, these are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. So really driving home the point that Esau's descendants from a worldly perspective did great things. They were powerful people. They were in charge of entire uh, people groups. So they, they were kings, they were chiefs, but then, so his descendants were great, but then also he's given land. As we saw earlier, Esau, also known as Edom, becomes the father of the Edomites. God provides for them specifically a plot of land. It wasn't like Esau breaks away from Jacob and then just goes and finds random, a random spot to just throw everything down and say, this is now mine. God specifically provides for Esau uh, a section um, of just south of the, the Dead Sea and says, this is for you. And kind of doubles down on it for, throughout the Old Testament that this is the land of Esau. I've given this to him. Genesis chapter 36, verse eight says, so Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. There's a, as we'll see in a little bit, a mountain, um, Mount Seir is kind of the, the main place where Esau and his descendants settle. 
This is just kind of a map to give you an idea. So you've got, uh, as you can see here, you've got the Mediterranean Sea over here. You've got where Judah ends up. But right here is the southernmost point of the Dead Sea. And Edom right here is where they're going to settle. And specifically, as it says, the hill country of Seir, you can see Mount Seir is right here. That's, this is the area in which they go. It's outlined here in white. And this is something that, this is the, the land that God has given them. So God has blessed Esau. He's blessed him with descendants. Here we see he's blessed him with land. I mean, think about the Israelites. They're sojourning in a land that has been promised to them and they're eventually going to get there. But now Esau breaks away from Jacob, the, the, son, of, uh, the son of Isaac, who is, is not received the, the blessing that we've talked about through Genesis. And he is given this land. He's given the land of Edom. This land, like I said, is a, a gift from God. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see references to where this is Esau's land. I have give, God is saying, I have given this to Esau as a possession. In Deuteronomy chapter two, it's talking about the Israelites passing by uh, the land of Edom. And it says, do not contend with them for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. This is Esau's land. This is the land for the descendants of Esau. Again, in Joshua chapter 24, it says, and I, have, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Now, this is a reference as we'll see in the, in the coming weeks of, it's just so fascinating to think about how Esau or, or Jacob being the, the child of the promise, the one who's received the blessing if you carry out his history, he's going to spend the next few years sojourning. He's going to eventually take his whole family to Egypt where they're gonna be in slavery. Yet Esau, the one who hasn't received the blessing from Jacob, now has his own land. He's got his own, his own uh, possession of a land. He's got all the descendants. He's got uh, everything that you would expect from a blessing. But here's the key. The Edomites, the, the people, the descendants of Esau are a picture of a life that has been blessed by God, but they don't experience the presence or the power of God. That's what this, this genealogy is trying to get us to understand. From a worldly perspective, Esau's got it all. He has everything that you could ever ask for. I mean, he's got the land, he's got the descendants, yet he is experiencing all of this without experiencing God. God has given him these things, but he has forgotten who God is. But that's the key to remember is Esau was blessed. He was blessed by God, yet he's blessed by God without experiencing the presence of God. It's one of those things where he had all of these blessings without the relationship. He, he didn't know who God was. God didn't know him. And when I say that, I don't mean God had no idea who Esau was. But as, I, as I've gone through this lesson, one of the things that I've thought about is, you know, for us, one of the phrases that we long to hear is, you know, when we're standing before the Lord, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. The thing we don't want to hear is God say, turn away from me. I never knew you. That's kind of what's going on here is Jay, or Esau doesn't know God. God doesn't know Esau. Esau does not have 
that relationship. We'll see that his line of, of descendants become nothing but pagans uh, to the point that one of the people that comes out of Esau's line is actually King Herod, who was the king who tried to put the Messiah to death as a baby. So you can see where this line goes. So Esau is this picture perfect example of a life that has been blessed by God, but does not experience the, uh, the relationship with God, doesn't experience the presence of God. But what can we learn from the descendants of Esau? What can we learn from this genealogy? It is very clear through all of the actions that we can figure out in, or that we can see in Genesis that Esau craved temporal blessings. It says he hated his birthright. He, he would rather trade his birthright for something temporal, right? A, a, a cup of stew. He, he traded his whole birthright for that. We see time and time again that he just goes after the temporal blessing. This is something that he craves. Possessions to him were a measure of success. And I mean, it's very clear that from a worldly perspective, Esau was very successful. We don't really see everything that happens to him as we focus a lot on Jacob in the uh, early chapters of really like 27 through 35. But we can pretty much deduce through chapter 36 that that entire time that Jacob was gone, Esau just amassed wealth. He, he became more and more wealthy. He gained more and more power. He just became basically more and more rich. Esau's story is a story of wealth without true riches. It's one of those things where he, he's got all the wealth in the world, yet he is completely forgetting the one key thing, and that is the only reason he's got all of this is because of the blessing of God. So it's wealth without true riches, it's power without God's presence, it's worldly success without eternal hope. And I, when I wrote that down, I literally had to stop for a second because while it's, it's a, a quick sentence to say, it's a terrifying thing to hear. And trying to grasp my mind around how often we place our hope, even if we don't realize it, place our hope in the worldly possessions that we have. Or, or crave those things more than we crave a relationship with the Lord. I mean, scripture is clear time and time again that the things of this world are fleeting. The, the, our life is here for a little while, but it passes away like a vapor in, in the sky. Esau's life is showing us that, man, he is focusing on the success that he can gain in this world. He is focusing on the temporal um, success that he can have rather than focusing on the eternal hope. His faith isn't something, his faith, his hope, his trust isn't something completely temporary. This, this life of Esau is pretty reflective of a passage in 1 John chapter two. I'm gonna read it here. It's at the top of your sermon or uh, sermon notes, the, the notes we handed you guys. It's also in the section that we're in now. It says, do not love this world, nor the things that it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever." 
I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. It's also really scary, right? All of these things that Esau's experiencing, placing his hope in these things are things of the world. He's blessed by God. He's been given all these things by God, but he doesn't see the Lord in it. These, I think this is such a warning passage to, to Esau, but also for us. I think the reason this passage is here, this genealogy is here, is to, to warn us, hey, don't be like Esau. Don't, don't live for the things of this world because guess what? They're not going with you. Live for the things that are eternal. See, Esau was blessed by God, but did not know God. He was in love with the world. And what does this passage in 1 John say? It's if you love the things of this world, if you, if you strive for only the things of this world, then the love of the Father is not in you. That is a, I don't think we understand how massive of a statement that is. If we are only striving for and loving for the things of this world, we are very quickly going to lose sight of the eternal hope that we have in the Lord. And so as I read through this, I ask myself, okay, in what ways have I been like Esau? I mean, I hope and pray that my descendants don't become like him or his descendants that go on to do uh, all, all of these crazy things. But in what ways here and now have I craved the temporal? In what ways have I only sought after um, the things of this world? And you know, there's a couple different examples that you can think of. Your economic status, the amount of money that you make, your career, your job, your possessions, your car, your house. I mean, it's going to be different for all of us. These are the things that I think we need to think through. You know, I, I'll just be honest with you guys. I look around at my friends right now and most of them make more than me. And I am absolutely guilty of being jealous of the things that they have. I want the, the bigger house. I want the nicer car. I want all these things. And in my head, I convince myself that, man, once I get that, like I'll be, I'll be good. I will have made it. I'll, I'll figure it out. But if the life of Esau is clear about anything, it's that stuff is never enough. It's, it's, it's never going to fulfill you. There's always going to be something better. The grass is always greener on the other side. There's always going to be something that keeps you wanting more. And all that is, is indicative of is, man, we've lost sight of our eternal hope. There's, there's something that each of us can point to of saying, man, I hope for that more than I hope for the love of the Father. The, the, I want these things more. I strive after these things more. I love these things more than I do the God of the universe. It's, it's like we've said over, I've said over and over again, Esau's life is a picture of the blessings of God without the presence of God. Because all of these things are not inherently bad, right? I mean, as we've seen, you know, God has blessed Esau. God has given Esau these things, yet he's lost sight of his, his, of his eternal hope and the reason he has all of these things. And that's the point is the danger of us misrepresenting the blessings of God. God has blessed, has blessed Esau, but has seen it and lost sight of the true reason behind everything that he's been given. But then think about it from the flip side of that. Sometimes the blessings that we receive from God might not come in the form that we desire them to come in. Look at what Ken says specifically about this. It says, while Esau and his descendants were busy making themselves at home in Edom, 
Israel and his descendants would be continuing their nomadic lifestyle established by Abraham and Isaac. You see, while Esau was settling in Edom, while Esau had his own land, while Esau had a ton of descendants, while he had a ton of possessions, he had a ton of livestock, he had a ton of wealth, Jacob and his family and his descendants ultimately are going to end up in Egypt. They're going to end up in slavery for hundreds of years. And then after that, they're gonna go through a whole ordeal to get out of Egypt and all throughout Exodus. And then they're gonna wander in the wilderness for 40 years. All the while, Esau and his descendants are flourishing. They're having, they have everything that they could possibly ask for. So, so what is, what's going on here? What's the comparison? Because for right now, if you were to just read Genesis chapter 36 with an understanding of what's gonna happen here in the future with uh, Jacob and his descendants, it would seem that the nations, the goyim, are better off than the goy. And if we remember back to the promises given to the people of Israel or the people of God, it's the nation, the nation will, through, through the nation, all of the nations will be blessed. But right now it seems backwards. But here's the important thing to understand. And this is truly a, a blessing. And the thing that Jacob and his, fa- his descendants are learning is they've got to have an eternal perspective. I think when we look at the the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau from a worldly perspective, yes, it does seem like the descendants of Esau have it off way better than the descendants of Jacob. But that's looking at it through a, a worldly perspective, a perspective that ultimately is going to die away. And what Jacob's descendants are learning, what Jacob's descendants are being taught by God is we have got to live our lives with an eternal perspective. And this is something that uh, Abraham very clearly understood. And we see uh, in, in different passages, specifically in Hebrews, it says, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as an inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. For he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all were promised the same thing, descendants, land, blessing, They sojourned in the land, the promised land, but were never actually possessing it. Yet they lived their entire lives believing in that promise. They never inherited the land, but they believed and trusted in the father that he was going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. All these people, Hebrews 11, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. This is the definition of what it looks like to live with an eternal perspective. Even if they don't see every single thing that God has promised, they trust in God enough to know that he will fulfill his promises. He is a faithful God who time and time again has come through on the things that he's promised 
And even though they don't see it, they still trust in the eternal perspective that the Lord is going to do exactly what he says he would. For them, the descendants of Jacob, back to, to where, we are, where we are right now, the descendants of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, all of them placed a higher priority on the future, the things that God has promised us that are to come rather than the present. Because like I've said, scripture is very clear that the things of this world are fleeting. They, they can't go with you. They're, they're going to be here for a little while and then they're gone. How hopeless is that? I mean, all of these worldly pleasures that we strive after are ultimately going to end in nothing. What we're being taught here is to live with that eternal perspective. You see, they trusted God for eternal blessings rather than the temporal ones. Ultimately, what this is, is they had faith in the promises of God. They believed and trusted in the Lord. While the descendants of Esau had earthly kings, they had wealth, they had cities, they had everything that you could possibly imagine at the time to have by worldly standards, they had it all. The descendants of Jacob, they would have none of that at least for another 400 years. Reading that statement, you sit there and you think, man, I, I mean, just telling you what I'd want, I'd want to go live with the descendants of Esau. They have it way better than the descendants of Jacob do. They have their own nation. They have a place to live. The descendants of, of Jacob, him and his family, they're sojourning in Israel for a while and then going to slavery. Doesn't seem great, yet they are living, the sins of Jacob are living with the eternal perspective of, man, we serve a God who is going to do what he says he's going to do. We serve a God who is faithful to his promises. And how amazing is it that we can put our trust, our faith, our hope in that. Hebrews eleven fourteen it says, obviously people who say such things are looking forward to a country they call their own. This passage in Hebrew is speaking ex- uh, specifically to the likes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who know that right now they do not, in, they do not uh, possess the land that's promised to them, yet they're looking forward to the day where God will fulfill his promises. It says, if they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. Abraham had every opportunity to go back where he came from, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Think about that last sentence. God is looking at his chosen people. God is looking at the nation, teaching them to have this eternal perspective. Every single one of the people that we've mentioned today, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we said they don't actually ever possess the promised land, yet they believe in the eternal promises of God. And because of that, God is not ashamed to be called their God. That is a a statement that I think should resonate with us. And how amazing is it that the God of the universe is looking down on them saying, "I, I am not ashamed to be called their God because look at the perspective that they have on this life. Now, as we've said, Esau, his whole life is a picture of the blessings of God without the presence of God. Look at what ultimately comes from the line of Esau and what happens to them. In the first couple of uh, verses of chapter 36, we see that Esau marries Canaanite women. He marries two of them, and then he marries the, one of the daughters of Ishmael. If you remember back, 
uh, it would have been in the, in the fall when we were going through uh, the first half of Genesis. Ken taught on a passage where Abraham was looking for a wife for his son, Isaac. And he told his servant to go find him a wife and he made him promise to not go after and find a Canaanite woman because that was going to be forbidden. This was the passage where he said, promise me by putting your hand under my thigh. And then we found out that putting his hand under his thigh meant something completely different than what we thought it meant. But it's that passage. In that passage, marriage to Canaanite women was forbidden. Esau goes and marries two of them. Now this was forbidden because they were pagans. They worshiped people, they worshiped gods that were not Yahweh. They were not the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God knows that if they marry into the, the Canaanites, they will assimilate. They will be, eventually become pagans and stop worshiping God. And that's exactly what happens. There's a reason this was forbidden. And so when Esau marries two Canaanite women, they stop worshiping the Lord and they become pagans. They start worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. Eventually, all of this turns to where they become the enemies of God's people. There are, there's time and time again throughout scripture where uh, they kind of come to a head with the people of Israel. One of the descendants that uh, Esau has with his concubine is Amalek, who becomes the father of the Amalekites. All throughout the Old Testament, you hear a lot of the, the ites, the different nations of Israel that are, are the different nations that go up against Israel. One of the main ones is the Amalekites. They come from the line of Esau. What I said earlier, the chiefs, the kings, King Herod, the one that put out the order to try to, to kill the Messiah as a baby comes from the line of Esau. And so you see just in that one simple decision to marry the Canaanite women, they, it ends up making them worship the gods of the Canaanite. You just see how that trickles down. And then you compare that as Moses is trying to get us to understand to the descendants of Jacob and what ends up happening there. You, you see a life with God and then a life without God and the ultimate results of that. All of this is ultimately going to bring judgment on the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Specifically in Jeremiah, it, said, it says this, is there no wisdom in Timon? Is no one left to give wise counsel? Turn and flee, hide in deep caves, you people of Dedan. For when I bring disaster on Edom, I will punish you too. Those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor. If these came at night, they would not take everything, but I will strip bare the land of Edom and there will be no place left to hide its children, its brothers, and its neighbors will all be destroyed and Edom itself will be no more. I mean, Edom, God is making it very clear that he is bringing judgment upon Edom. Again, in uh, Obadiah, it says, the Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. You've been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here, you ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. It's very clear that ultimately the wrath of God is, is brought upon the Edomites. 
at a certain point, the, these, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau are so far away from the Lord that they actually turn on God's people. And because of this, judgment is brought upon them. Ken wrote in his devotionary, God would bless Esau, resulting in the formation of a variety of nations and people groups, but they would fail to honor God and worship him alone. Instead, they would seek and serve the false gods of Canaan, resulting in the pouring out of God's divine wrath. This chapter in Genesis is not pointless. While it does include a lot of names that we're probably never gonna be able to pronounce, this chapter is chock full of a lesson of, look, Esau was blessed by God, but forgot God. Esau had wealth, possessions, descendants, land. He had everything, yet he forgot the Lord. Comparing that to Israel, they, by worldly standards, didn't look blessed, but they were the blessed people. They were the chosen nation through whom God would bless all the other nations of the earth. And what's fascinating is you see the line, from the line of Jacob comes Judah, the tribe of Judah, and through Judah, you get David. Through the the line of David, you get ultimately Jesus. And like I said earlier, it's fascinating to see how through Esau, you eventually get to King Herod. And so you see how ultimately these two paths lead to totally different destinations. Esau, time and time again, lived for the temporal blessings. And I think as we read through this chapter, Moses is trying to make sure the people of Israel understand that the the temporal things of this world, they will not last. The thing that will last is putting our faith, our hope, and trust in God and living with that eternal perspective. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17 say this. It says, make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. I pray that we don't get to that point, that we're, we're at the end of it and we realize, man, I've done this all wrong. This chapter is challenging us to live with that eternal perspective right now. So here are your questions for today. What are some ways in which we worship the gift more than the giver? How do we end up enjoying God's blessing, but not his presence? What are some of the blessings that we have that are the blessings in our life come from the Lord, yet we've forgotten who they've come from? Second, what would living with an eternal perspective look like in your life? Think practically, not just spiritually. How in our everyday lives can you and I practically remind ourselves to think with, the internal, uh, with an eternal perspective. And lastly, read 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. Of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, which do you struggle with the most and why? Oh, pray with me. Father, thank you for today. And thank you for just bringing us here this morning and gosh, giving us this, this wonderful passage. Uh, I, I pray that we we dig down to the roots of it all and we don't just skip over it because it's a bunch of names. But Lord, that we see the the lesson that you are trying to make sure that we understand that we we should live with an eternal perspective rather than the temporal. Lord, I pray that uh, you would reveal to us and and reveal to us in our hearts the things that we live for um, in the world, the things that we crave in this world more than we strive after you, Lord. And I pray that you would allow us to begin the steps of remitting that and living with an eternal perspective. 
So be with us this morning as we are at our tables, Lord, and I just pray um, that the discussion would go well. It's in your name I pray. Amen.